Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you're listening. I'm recording this from the Aboriginal land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who might be listening to us today. Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast. I'm Jane Winter from Dietitian Connection and I'm an accredited practicing dietitian. Today, my guest is Professor Lars Boda, and our topic is human milk oligosaccharides. Now, you might be starting to hear quite a lot about human milk oligosaccharides or HMOs as their role in infant health and development are emerging. HMOs are complex sugars and the third most abundant component of human milk after lactose and lipids. When I just entered the term human milk oligosaccharides into PubMed, I got around 150 publications just from the last 12 months. But typing it into Google, I got over 3 million results. And in the list of scholarly articles, the first three listed are authored by Professor Boda. So I know that we've got the right person today to explain HMOs to us. Professor Lars Boda is Professor of Paediatrics in the Division of Neonatology and the Division of Gastroenterology, Hepatology and Nutrition at the University of California, San Diego. He's been working on HMOs for over 20 years, leading a research program dedicated to investigating HMO biosynthesis and functions with the potential benefits for infant health and development. He's published over 120 peer-reviewed articles on human milk oligosaccharides. And our podcast episode today is supported by the Nestle Nutrition Institute. So welcome to our podcast today, Lars. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Jane. Uh, pleasure to be here. So to get us started, can you give us a bit of your background and how you came to be interested in this topic and researching it so actively? Yeah, so it's a long story that started <laughs> all the way back in high school. And certainly I did not think of human milk oligosaccharides in high school. Um, but uh, I was a very active athlete, athlete uh, going to the gym quite often and really focusing on my nutrition and wanted to have the, the best nutrition possible to be uh, as um, well performing as possible. And eventually, uh, my interest got in studying nutrition. So uh, I studied uh, nutritional sciences in Gießen in Germany. And uh, during the summers, we had to do internships uh, in companies or in other research institutes. And one summer, I did the first in, uh, internship at the Max Planck Institute in Germany, which was on shear stress-inducible promoters, so highly molecular biology. Mm, oh, popular uh, cloning, topic. <laughs> cloning, yeah, very much so. Uh, cloning uh, all kinds of things into promoters to see how they respond to blood flow, actually. So when blood flows and goes over endothelial cells, how do these cells know what kind of flow is going on? So um, has nothing to do, clearly, with oligosaccharides. Uh, then the same summer, the second part of the summer break, I did an internship at a formula company. So now we're getting closer to the topic. Mm. And uh, at the formula company, I was working on glycolipids, uh, comparison between human milk and infant formula or bovine milk uh, components. 
And uh, there what I did is I looked at the lipid part of the glycolipids, clipped off the glycans of the sugars, and pretty much threw them away. <laughs> so uh, still no connection to human milk oligosaccharides. But the group next door was working on human milk oligosaccharides, one of the very few groups back then, this was in the late 1990s, that started to study structures of human milk oligosaccharides. And I was absolutely fascinated that we didn't know anything about it. Yeah, in uh, fact, we you also were in the bin. That's right. Uh, you know, we didn't know uh, how they were made in the mammary gland. We didn't know what they were doing there. What's the benefit for the infants? We knew there was a hundreds of structures, um, but what the, what they were doing, we didn't know. So then, after the summer, I went back to the university, and it was time to pick my uh, PhD thesis topic. And Professor Clemens Kunz in Germany had a thesis that looked at. Uh, human milk oligosaccharides at the intersection of endothelial cells and leukocytes, so white blood cells, which was exactly what I did at the Max Planck mm. Institute before, but not on oligosaccharides. So I could really bring those two topics together. And that's what started my interest. So this was the year 2000. I uh, started to work on oligosaccharides and studied immune effects, so endothelial cells, leukocyte interactions. And we found that those oligosaccharides actually reduce um, uh, leukocyte migration and potentially reduce uh, inflammation to a certain extent. And uh, then uh, from there, I uh, went to the US uh, in 2003 to do a postdoc on glycobiology to really got deep, deep dive into uh, glycans. And then 2009, I got a position at the university here in San Diego to start a research program back on human milk oligosaccharides. And ever since, uh, that's been the focus. And uh, there's still lots to discover, although it's been quite a few years now, over 20 years I've been working on it. Yeah, but you must have seen um, an explosion of interest amongst other research groups around the world globally now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So it's been a niche. Back in 2000, there was two, three groups that were working on this. And people were like, why do you work on these oligosaccharides? <laughs> uh, in fact, we did some calculations back then. The oligosaccharide that we found to interfere with those endothelial leukocyte uh, um, cells, uh, we did the calculation. What would we do? How much would it cost to take that oligosaccharide that we identified to add that to infant formula? And we said, well, the package of infant formula would then cost about $1.5 million. <laughs> so completely not feasible, right? I mean, that was the time when you made them maybe chemically, you extract them from human milk or you do the total chemical synthesis. And, uh, you know, fast forward 15, 20 years, and you find them now in the supermarket in some of the infant formula. It's a huge advancement that happened there over the last few years. Yeah, and pretty quick too. So can you explain to us what they actually are, HMOs, how many there are? What are we talking about? Right. So, so human milk oligosaccharides are complex sugars. Uh, the predominant sugar in human milk is lactose, so the milk sugar. And then oligosaccharides are slightly longer. So they are made out of five different building blocks. Um, and these building blocks are put together in different linkages. So it's like Lego bricks that you put together. And depending on how you put them together, you get different, um, different little uh, entities there. And it's the same with the oligosaccharides, depending on how you put those together you get different structures and those different structures have different effects how many are there um some people say there's at least more than 100 i think we all agree on that uh, others say it's at least 150 some people say 200 others say it could be up to a thousand so it depends a little bit uh, you know what we take as the threshold what we define a clearly characterized the human milk oligosaccharide if you have full mass spec data if you have full NMR data, you know exactly how the oligosaccharide looks like, then we can count that as an oligosaccharide. And there, I would say it's about 150 different ones at this point. And does that, the profile, if there's that many different types or configurations, um, do the profile and concentrations, HMOs, vary 
between mothers and in their lactation, like from birth to 12 months or morning to night? You know, how, how variable is it? Yeah, so so that is uh, that's the big question, right? So it changes quite a bit, or it's quite different between different women. Huge variation from mom to mom, and that depends mostly on genetics, but there are also other factors like nutrition, uh, physical activity, and you know supplementation with uh, with certain things that that could change the oligosaccharide composition to a certain extent. But genetically, you already have certain types of oligosaccharides uh, or not. Um, so gen- genetics play a huge role. And then, yes, it changes also over the course of lactation. We've seen that in the small scale, so within a day or within a feed even, or within a week, uh, the changes are really minimal. So if you take a sample today in the morning and today at night, you would get probably about the same oligosaccharide concentration. If you take it on Monday and then again on Friday, you probably get the same oligosaccharide concentration. But over the longer term of uh, lactation, so from one month to a year, to two years, you see the oligosaccharides change dramatically. High concentration of oligosaccharides in the beginning, most oligosaccharides go down in concentration over time with a few exceptions. So there's an oligosaccharide called 3-fucosolactose that goes up in every cohort that we studied over time, it goes up in concentration. And uh, we don't know why that is. Is it needed at a later time in lactation? Uh, are the others not needed that much? So uh, it's quite peculiar to see that there's one or two oligosaccharides that go up and against the trend of all the other oligosaccharides. Which and I guess your your assumption is that it must play some kind of role that the concentration is important for some reason to change like that right. over time. Yeah. Right. So, so either it still has an effect right now or it had an effect somewhere during evolution and that still persists until then. So when you talk about genetics being a determinant of the HMO composition of um, breast milk, um, does that also mean that there's cultural differences, like your your cultural background, racial background impacts? Yeah, very much so. So we see that there is certain genes uh, where you have what's called single nucleotide polymorphisms, which really means that there's one base pair in that particular gene that's different. So out of the millions of different genes, there's one little base pair that's different. And it changes oligosaccharide composition completely. So it changes milk composition dramatically. And we found that um, that particular single nucleotide polymorphism is different in different parts of the world. Uh, You see that uh, most women in South America, for example, are of a particular type uh, of uh, oligosaccharide composition. Whereas on the African continent, you see 35, 40% are of a different type of oligosaccharides. So uh, that has to do with genetics, but you know, genetics also determine, of course, uh, uh, geography and, lo- mm. uh, and uh, race as well. Uh, so that's all interconnected to a certain point. And we strongly believe that there is some evolutionary force that uh, there was maybe some pathogens that drove uh, selection for one or the other oligosaccharide type in different parts of the world at different times. And that's why we still see these different oligosaccharide profiles uh, quite different. And we would call it lactotypes, actually, some milk types, uh, because the oligosaccharides are so different. And is it is um, do the, the maternal diet play a very big part in that profile or, or lesser? to a lesser extent? It's hard to tell because doing studies on humans uh, during pregnancy and lactation, where Mm. you now start to manipulate the diet and control it very well, very difficult to do. And you need fairly large cohorts to do that. We have some pilot data where we see both in animal models, but then also tracking that in humans that are 
under very good control when it comes to diet and physical activity, uh, that there seems to be some effects, and they seem to be similar between uh, animals and uh, and humans. Uh, very difficult to study, but I would say uh, the effect of nutrition is probably not as strong as the genetics that we see. Yeah. So when, when you're talking about 150 different types of um, oligosaccharides, are there some that are um, sort of generally present in higher quantities that in human milk? And, and I guess they're the ones that tend to be um, researched more thoroughly because they're more easily accessed. But are there ones that we should know the names of? Yeah, so that, so there is about uh, ten to twenty, uh, ten to fifteen oligosaccharides that make up the majority of oligosaccharides by weight. So uh, I would say those those top fifteen oligosaccharides are probably the top eighty-five to ninety percent of all oligosaccharides. All the other oligosaccharides that come after that go down in concentration very quickly. So you lose, or you don't lose, but the concentration is different by tenfold, hundredfold, and sometimes even more than that. So you have this top group of all oligosaccharides. They're the smaller oligosaccharides. And then it gets uh, the structures get bigger, but the concentration also gets lower quite a bit. So, uh, is it true that those oligosaccharides that are in highest abundance that are the most important ones? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, small concentrations can have big effects as well. And you're absolutely right. Just because something is abundant and we may have it available to study, and that's why we have more results doesn't necessarily mean that they are the more important ones uh, because we can't study the other ones because they're in such low abundance and they're very difficult to synthesize. So we don't really have anything to work with when we research them. Yeah. Uh, so, so absolutely true. And then, you know, just like I mentioned with the, with the lactotypes, uh, there are some oligosaccharides that are the highest and most abundant oligosaccharides in human milk of most women. And that is the 2-Fucosyl lactose, often abbreviated with 2-FL. But then in 20, 25% of the women, that oligosaccharide is completely absent. So sometimes you have some oligosaccharides that are highly dominating, but not in all women. So uh, that's really interesting to dissect. Yes, when we now have this oligosaccharide available and we add that to particular formulas, um, do we really recap what happens in nature? Because, uh, you know, like I said, 20, 25% of the women do not make these oligosaccharides and the infants would not receive. So what do we know about, about the, the function of HMOs? What do we know now are the benefits of these um, HMOs in the milk? I would still say we know very little about it, <laughs> despite all the research that has been done and all the many papers that you mentioned in the beginning that are coming out uh, describing effects and, and, and structures. Um, and that is because some of those oligosaccharides are just now becoming available in larger quantities that we can actually study them. Some are becoming available in such high quantities and fairly low cost that we're already adding them to infant formula. And now we need to say, oh, they do this and they do that. But we don't know that 100%. And we certainly have a lot of a black box there where we don't know anything about certain oligosaccharides. And we, we really just add them currently to products because they are in human milk. Um, and um, you know, let's talk about what we do know, what we think we do know. And again, I think there's a lot that we think that we don't know. Um, so oligosaccharides are often described as the uh, 
nature's first prebiotics. So uh, they're, we know that they make it intact into the large intestine, so they're not getting digested by the baby directly. They make it into the large intestine, and then there's bacteria waiting. They can metabolize them, and then certain bacteria can metabolize them, other bacteria cannot. And those that can metabolize them now have a growth advantage, and then they have some benefits. Uh, the bacteria have some benefits uh, on the host, on the baby. So that's the concept of being a prebiotic, simple, similar to the prebiotics that we have in our yogurts now and, and many other things in adult nutrition. Um, but again, I think that doesn't do it justice. Oligosaccharides, again, 150 different structures. If they were just there to be eaten up by some bacteria, why not just have two or three uh, or four or five? So um, we strongly believe that they have other effects as well. And there's good data to support that they actually have antimicrobial effects. So they do exactly the opposite. There's some bacteria that we don't want to have in the intestine or in other niches like the respiratory tract where those oligosaccharides go after and they stop the growth of those specific bacteria or viruses or other things. And uh, that's probably an advantage because we don't want to have some of those because they can, they can make us sick so they can be pathogens. Uh, so there's direct effects on, on on that. And I think the, the best data there currently that's out there is on group B streptococcus, uh, where we know that individual oligosaccharides uh, just stop the growth of group B streptococcus entirely, um, which of course is, is, is quite important, important both for maternal and infant health. And then we also know that the oligosaccharides have direct effect on your epithelial cells, so the barrier function of the intestine might be strengthened. Uh, there's effects on immune cells, so your immune cell or immune system might be strengthened. And uh, and there's some new data that's coming out that oligosaccharides have an effect on brain development. Um, we don't think that's direct. So the oligosaccharides probably do not cross the blood-brain barrier. But uh, some metabolites might have an effect on, on the brain there as well and uh, could potentially make us smarter, which, of course, is a great uh, <laughs> prospect there for studying oligosaccharides. And I guess um, the, the explosion in research around the microbiome um, is going along in parallel with this. So the more we understand the beneficial effects of some of the gut bacteria, then it opens up a whole range of aspects that possibly HMOs have an impact on, which I'm just thinking brain, obviously, you know, barrier, immune, they're all things that we're looking at when we talk about gut microbiome as well. So it stands to reason that we're early days. Um, so when we think about HMOs um, and possible applications for synthetic um, versions of the HMOs, how, how do you see that they might be used? And, and I've read some stuff about using preterm infants, for example. Yeah, so maybe let's start in the preterm infant. Uh, I think there is, there's uh, probably the, some of the most solid data uh, when it comes to a disease that's called necrotizing enterocolitis, uh, short neck. So that's uh, several preterm infants still suffer from necrotizing enterocolitis, and that's like a spontaneous ischemic uh, disorder in the intestine. The intestine spontaneously uh, uh, turns necrotic, turns black, and it's a, it's a huge problem. Uh, many infants still die from that, uh, preterm infants. Uh, and we and others have shown that oligosaccharides seem to play a role in protecting the preterm infant from this devastating disease. We know that human milk uh, protects the infant from it. So we know that uh, formula-fed infants are at a six to tenfold higher risk to develop this disease. And uh, so we set out to ask the question, well, is it potentially oligosaccharides that contribute to the benefit of human milk? 
And uh, we found first in an animal model that there is one specific oligosaccharide called DSLMT, uh, currently not available in large scale and currently not added to infant formula, uh, that works in the animal model to reduce uh, pathology, but also improves the survival quite a bit. So the survival numbers go up uh, tremendously when this oligosaccharide is present um, uh, during the first few days. And we've then seen uh, in parallel to that in multiple different human cohorts in North America, in the UK, and in South Africa, uh, that infants that receive higher amounts of this specific oligosaccharide with mom's milk, so very, the concentrations vary between different women. Uh, so if the concentration of this oligosaccharide is high, then the infant is very unlikely to develop necrotizing endocolitis. So it seems to be protected. So it really goes hand in hand with the, um, with the animal data that we had uh, generated originally. Um, and that's something that we're actively researching right now. Can we identify technologies uh, that can uh, detect low levels of this oligosaccharide in mom's own milk or in donor milk? Uh, and we've made some progress to have some point of care device that can measure oligosaccharides right there. Uh, and then, of course, the other question is, can we make this oligosaccharide synthetically available to add to either formula products or to mom's own milk or donor milk batches that have uh, low concentrations of it? And I think that is where currently the most progress has been made on individual oligosaccharides. But again, this one is currently not available to be added to, to infant formula. So do you think we're still a little way off that as being a, a useful actual clinical tool for prevention or management of neck we're a bit far off away from that i would give it uh, two or three years maybe oh, okay, so the, not so uh, far. no not so far so diagnostic tool is in the making currently uh we managed to measure one oligosaccharide accurately at the point of care and now working on dsnt and the synthesis of dsnt is just i know that people will be able to do it uh, in the next few months or a couple of years maybe and then it's just a question of scale it up and and delivering it uh, I think it's possible. And making sure that it doesn't cost $1.5 million That's per right. tin. Yes, yes. <laughs> so <laughs> thinking about um, the, the prebiotic function, for, for some time um, infant formulas have had prebiotics like FOSS and GOSS um, added to them. How do HMOs differ from something like FOSS and GOSS? Yeah, FOSS is an interesting one because... Um, we just saw a paper that said uh, fructooligosaccharides in breast milk and how they were uh, made available as supplements. I want to make this very clear. Fructooligosaccharides are not in human milk. Uh, I think that's a, a misnomer here. Fructose and fucose are two different monosaccharide building blocks. Fructose is different from fucose. Fructose we find made in plants and not in humans, whereas fucose is made in humans and other mammals and other vertebrates, actually. Uh, so there's been some confusion even in the professional literature that people call one the other, fruco mm. fructose and fructose and whatever. It's all the same thing. It's not. So fructooligosaccharides are a multimer of fructose. And again, that's coming out of plant. And fucosylated oligosaccharides we find in human milk. So two different uh, things that we need to separate. And then the galacto-oligosaccharides is a polymer of galactose which we also do not find in human milk. That's usually made by bacterial enzymes that add that, that cleave lactose and then add galactose onto it in different linkages. We do not find that in human milk either. And it's very, very low concentrations, a very small molecule. And uh, it's quite a different uh, structural set of molecules. So structurally, they're very different. 
for once, and they're not in human milk, so we need to make that clear. So why do we have it in infant formula? That's the big question. And uh, that was really at a time where human milk oligosaccharides were not available at all at large quantities, and certainly not at cost. That was the time around the $1.5 million uh, story. Uh, but I think formula companies have recognized that there is some prebiotic effects of these structures uh, uh, and we want to mimic that somehow in products to make that available to formula-fed infants as well. And the next be best thing was these fructo-oligosaccharides and galacto-oligosaccharides in a certain uh, ratio. Um, and uh, research has shown that some of these uh, scars mixtures have some prebiotic effects that are similar to human milk oligosaccharides, uh, at least on a uh, fire level. Uh, but structurally, again, they're different. So... Uh, the, the structural decomposition of these structures um, by uh, bacteria will also be different. So we'll have maybe the same bacteria, but they break it down differently with different structures and then deliver different metabolites. And those different metabolites then have different functions on the host, the infant. So it's not the same thing. Although yeah. some functions may overlap. I think that's yeah. important. So, so you're, you're essentially adding a prebiotic to an infant formula that is not necessarily something that usually occurs from... Um, human breast milk, whereas HMOs are something that do naturally occur. And so we're trying to look at what the benefits of those are, which are specifically human milk sugars. But, and I guess also, but you still, as you said, got a way to go because we still, it's not consistent. You don't get the standard amount. It's not like lactose where you just have lactose in the breast milk. You, the, the profile of HMOs varies from mum to mum. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's the challenge at this point, right? So if you wanted to deploy a product that looks similar to human milk, I always ask the question, which human milk are we talking about? Because human milk is so different. Uh, are you having one mom that you take as the standard mom now? Or do you calculate the average, which I think is happening right now? But if you calculate the average, are you losing out on opportunities uh, where maybe in certain parts of the world or in certain disease contexts or in certain you know, environmental contexts, uh, you need different oligosaccharides at higher or lower concentrations. So I think we're missing out there a little bit by really clumping everything together and taking this world average of, uh, of human milk oligosaccharide compositions and then take that to guide us as the target for oligosaccharide fortification. Um, we're really missing out, but of course, that's the, the first step there to, to somehow grasp what kind of oligosaccharides to add in what concentration. Yes, and I guess you always have that issue if you have a baby that can't be breastfed for some reason. Um, you can never completely simulate um, breast milk, so you have to take some kind of approach with an infant formula composition. But the, the thought about how, how variable that is, the, the um, composition of HMOs, and you mentioned before that um, there's a proportion of women that um, are... 2FL non-secretors, is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yes. So is it is it too early to go down the path of um, supplementing the mothers um, or the getting the, the babies to be supplemented um, with HMOs if their mothers are non-secretors? Yeah, I, I find that uh, quite dangerous. Uh, I've, I've read this a few times uh, where it says, oh, non-secretors lack certain oligosaccharides, so something must be wrong with them. Either they stop breastfeeding, we put them on formula that now contains all the oligosaccharides, or we add these oligosaccharides that are missing to, uh, to mom's own milk. I find that dangerous because we don't know enough about it. Uh, there is probably why we still have in certain 
parts of the world, 35 to 40 percent of the women that don't make this specific oligosaccharide. So now we're playing uh, a God there to a certain extent where we say, oh, there must be something missing there. So let's add that in. I would be very careful with that. Uh, we don't fully understand why the oligosaccharide is there in the first place, why it's not there in other instances. And now going in and trying to correct something that we don't understand um, is very dangerous. Yeah, but overall, I guess it's just, as you've mentioned, such an exciting area of research, like the possibilities of the functions of these HMOs um, are really exciting um, going into the future if we, if we can understand them a bit more. What are the your main research priorities? You mentioned doing some more work on um, NEC, but uh, what, are there other research priorities that you're pursuing in the topic of HMOs? Yeah, so lots of different things happening there right now. It's hard to keep up with the work that we're doing there. So certainly we're keeping our focus on NEC because I think we are very close uh, to deliver something that we've been working on for the last almost 15 years. And really based on science, based on actual data that guided us throughout the years uh, that this specific oligosaccharide might be important. So delivering this oligosaccharide and having a diagnostic to identify when this oligosaccharide might not be sufficient uh, is certainly a high priority for us. Um, at the same time, there is many other research areas uh, where we look at individual oligosaccharides, how they interact with epithelial cells and in the intestine, how they interact with certain bacteria, how they interact with immune cells. Uh, so, so that's all ongoing work. And we've taken it a few steps further, even leaving the maternal infant space behind and, and seeing what can we learn from our research that originally comes from infant health, of course, uh, is there something that we can learn what oligosaccharides do on a molecular, on a cellular level, and then uh, harness the, the information that we have there and leverage that to, to bring that to other diseases? So, for example, we're currently working on a project in rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, so it has nothing to do with mm. infants, of course. This is at the other end of the life spectrum. Uh, or cardiovascular disease, so people that will eventually have stroke or, or heart attack. You know, millions of people have lost uh, every year. And we think that there is something in human milk oligosaccharides that could potentially reduce the risk for these diseases, uh, you know, make you suffer less from arthritis and uh, help you potentially also avoid the heart attack and stroke. And that could be a natural compound that comes out of human milk that, of course, is nature tested. Uh, we give it to babies every two, three hours when we breastfeed them, right? So if we could take the same compounds and understand what they do to the immune system, and I think we have understood that to a certain extent, and then deploy that in other areas of, of, uh, of healthcare, uh, there's huge opportunities there as well. Uh, just imagine you take a simple sugar out of human milk, uh, you know, a couple of times a day, and you're not developing a heart attack. Yeah, I think that would be a massive improvement. Yeah, yeah, that that's a really exciting potential. And I think, as you say, the potential to do something in that um, neck population, you know, it's obviously just such a terrible thing to have happen to a newborn and and if you can do something that's relatively simple intervention and prevent it or treatment that's obviously incredible um so just if you have your um of your crystal ball there um and you look into the future of hmos um where do you think we'll be in maybe five or ten years yeah, difficult to say. You know, if I had gotten the same question back in 2000, <laughs> 2003, uh, when we said it will never happen because it's way too expensive, uh, it would have been terribly wrong. Uh, but we stuck to it. So uh, we did make some progress. So it's very difficult to envision, of course, what will happen in the next five to 10 years, the rapid speed that all this is happening. 
So I can absolutely envision that more oligosaccharides will become available at a fairly low cost. And I know that uh, multiple people are working on this. So we'll have a bigger blend of more oligosaccharides that we can add uh, to infant formula products. That's certainly something I see happening in the future. But I will. I, I would hope that we're not just going after those average concentrations that we find in human milk. I would really hope that we are making the effort to understand what these individual oligosaccharides do and then say, oh, we're deploying an infant formula product in an area that currently is affected by, let's say, a Campylobacter infection. Uh, so kids still suffering from diarrhea, let's say. And ah, we know these oligosaccharides will protect this infant from uh, this diarrhea infection. So let's bump up those concentrations of those oligosaccharides a bit. So we deploy this specific formula to that area. Or when we say, well, we know in the NICU, neck is a problem. We know that sepsis is a problem. We know these one, two, three oligosaccharides could uh, uh, prevent that. So let's bump up those oligosaccharide concentrations for this particular target. So, you know, we always talk about personalized nutrition and personalized medicine. That doesn't mean that every single person gets their own HMO blend. But at least we can take blends of oligosaccharides uh, and deploy them in areas where we know that they might have a better effect on this or on that or on this. So, um, so, so it's really being a little bit more targeted instead of just sprinkling everything everywhere. And we don't really know why we take certain concentrations. That is my hope for the future. Which I think is probably not dissimilar to our approach to probiotics now. Like years ago, you just took sort of whatever probiotic we had available, which is probably a lactobacillus or something. And now we've got much more evidence to say, well, this particular strain is really good in this particular condition and this strain is good. So just taking a blanket one might possibly give you some health benefits, but you can be much more targeted in the effects they can have. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I would really hope that, you know, some of those early approaches where, you know, let's face it, people just want to jump on a bandwagon and, and make a lot of profit out of it, that eventually the science will prevail and we will be guided by science and facts. And that will then lead to better product development. That's really my hope. And, and, I, and I really see that happening in the future. And then, of course, you know, application of oligosaccharides in other fields, uh, whether that's for adults uh, that have cardiovascular disease or arthritis, like I mentioned, or somewhere in pets where that also suffer from arthritis. Uh, you know, application spaces are unlimited almost. So um, that's really where I'd love to see the future. Targeted approaches where we do actually something smart and not just uh, because we can uh, make uh, uh, quick money out of it, um, but really something where we know what we're doing and why we're doing it and then deploy and, and, and have uh, products in that space that, that actually work. Well, you've got a lot of work to do, Lars, so I think you need to get straight back to the lab right now, <laughs> get cracking on all of that. Um, but really, thank you so much for your time today. Um, it was really nice to get a simple overview because, you know, we've talked about how much research is coming out at the moment. It's very hard if it's not your sole topic of um, interest, hard to keep up with the, the research and the data. So we appreciate your nice overview of it. Um, and if anyone listening today wants to go uh, and dive a bit deeper into the world of HMOs, they can go to the Dietitian Connection website and revisit the two webinars that you presented for us uh, last year that um, looked at, at HMOs in a bit more detail and the research in a bit more detail. So we'll put the link to those uh, in the show notes. You can also get more information on HMOs uh, by visiting the Nestle Nutrition Institute HMO Academy online. 
And finally, thank you very much to the Nestle Nutrition Institute for supporting our podcast today. This episode included discussion of infant formula ingredients. Breastfeeding is best and provides the ideal nutrition for babies and should always be promoted and supported. To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you, and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.